Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. So this morning we are uh, moving into our second week in a new series called The Hope Effect. And this series, our hope is that at the end of these seven weeks that you'll experience greater hope in your life. And so this series is a little different than what we usually do. It's a lot more practical application. So that's the reason why you have a sermon outline is because you might, after this experience, you might be jogging down what notes that you might need to apply in your life. What are ways in which you can hopefully experience greater hope in your life? Also, we have on the backside, we want to encourage you with a couple of tools for living and other things that, we, that might also be helpful for you. And so uh, this second week, we're talking about how to have greater hope and the idea that many of us need to raise our expectations. We need to acknowledge that we have small expectations on God, small expectations on how God could use us, and thus we might have small hope in our life. So I want to begin with a premise, and the basic premise is this, that expectations are powerful. Expectations are truly powerful. A couple of examples. But there are certain people in this world who have this dismal view on life. They walk through life like Eeyore, just already defeated. And they just have this, this glass half empty, a quarter empty life. And the funny thing is, as they walk through life, they find plenty of reasons to, to feel like affirmed in their perspective. They have low expectations on this world. Oftentimes for me, when I do premarital counseling, one conversation that I have with couples are, what are those expectations that you bring into marriage, right? What are those expectations that you, that you bring into marriage? And it's really helpful for, before they enter into their own marriage to talk about, well, I always saw my dad wash my mother's car like every week. Oh, okay, that's the expectation. Good. Good to know that. Thank you. But the expectations oftentimes will bring up hurt and pain because these expectations aren't met. Expectations are powerful. Uh, Think about a sports team. If your sports team was going into a match or a game and they know they're going to lose, how would that affect their, their effort? Why would they even try? I love, uh, love that movie, The Miracle, where U.S. hockey team was playing Russia. And what did the coach say? Something like this. We could play a hundred times, and we might win just once. But tonight could be that one time. <laughs> like, there is an expectation that anything is possible, and they played differently because of that. Uh, in, expectations are powerful. In college, did you ever gather your friends and serve them uh, Odul's non-alcoholic beer, thinking that what if they act like they're intoxicated? I never did that. Um, <laughs> but uh, expectations are powerful. All this to say that ex- expectations matter. And this is especially the case for our hope, for our spiritual life. The expectations that we bring into our life with Jesus, the expectations that we have of what God might do in our life, changes how we live It changes whether or not we are people of great hope or people who are just playthings in this world, just recipients of what life might do. It changes how we might see that the fact that life is fixed 
or hopefully it's open for us. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus spoke to his followers and said to them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What, what Jesus was trying to do is trying to, all right, I'm gonna clear your expectations of what you might think is possible in this life because with God all things are possible. So if there should be any people in this world who have just open expectations of what God could do, shouldn't it be the followers of Jesus? People of an empty tomb who know the story is never over with God. To always be people of greater hope. This morning, we're going to study one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It's my favorite, one of my favorite stories because it's so weird and unexpected, and it's tucked away in Second Kings, which usually we don't read or study or hear sermons about. And it's just a bizarre story, and I love weird things in this world. It's a story of a man named Elisha, and Elisha was a prophet. A prophet is just another way of saying that Elisha had this unique connection with God, and God used Elisha to, uh, to communicate to the nation of Israel. So God used Elisha to be able to, to share God's dreams, God's warnings, God's longings for this community. And in this story, we have the fact that there is, the, there is an enemy nation, the people of Aram, who were battling and warring against Israel. And what was happening is, as the king of Aram kept trying to attack Israel, God would tell Elisha, hey, just to let you know, they're about to, to attack this one part, this one piece of the land And so he would tell the king of Israel, and the king of Israel would send troops, and they'd be well prepared for that. This happened over and over again until finally the Aramean king knew something wasn't right. And he wondered, who within my inner circle is a spy? Because there's no way that time again, like they're just, they're prepared for us. And so he wondered, who is a spy? In 2 Kings 6, it picks up. They said, none of us, my lord. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. One, that's an unfair advantage in battle. And two, that's just super creepy. (laughs) If you know where you're going to be attacked, then you are better prepared for it. You can have your defense ready. And so the king of Aram replied in verse 13, So go find out where he is, so I can send men and capture him. And the report came back that he's in Dothan. So then the king of Aram sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. It's interesting to me that out of all the different plans this king could have enacted, he wanted to take out Elisha. Why? He wanted to cut off the voice of God to Israel. And this is honestly, this is a a common strategy in battle. If you can cut off the lifeline for an enemy, if you can cut off their provisions, their water, their food, if you can cut them, them off, then all you have to do is just wait. They, they will surrender after a while. If you can just cut off the supply line. And so this king of Aram applied the same strategy here with Elisha. If you can cut off the supply line between Elisha and the king of Israel, then maybe, maybe we'd be able to attack and win. Maybe Israel would finally be vulnerable and exposed. This story gives us instruction on, one, how we might lose hope here, 2017. 
Because the enemy's strategy might be the same in your life. If your supply line of hope could be cut off, then we're people who are vulnerable. We're exposed. And what is our supply line? How do we continue to receive hope from God? How do we continue to get God-sized expectations in our life? Well, we have this vibrant relationship with Jesus. And so for us to have people of great expectations, our, our first step is we have to stay connected to Jesus. We have to guard this vibrant relationship with Jesus because the enemy might try to cut that off. And in doing so, we are more vulnerable. So Jesus even talked about this in John 15. This is our namesake verse, by the way, as a church. Jesus declared, I am the vine. Jesus loved to speak in pictures, word, word pictures. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. That's that lifeline that Jesus is talking about, that we, are, we bring about life. We have fruit in our life. We can weather the storm when we remain in Jesus, when we stay connected to Jesus. And if we are detached from Jesus, if we are missing out on that vibrant relationship, then we'll wither. That makes me think of a life without hope, withering, being depleted, not having any fruit of hope in our life. What the enemy cannot cut off is our relationship with Jesus. That was made sure on the cross. But what Jesus is talking about here is this kind of connection, this vibrant, ongoing connection that we can have with who Jesus is, abiding in Christ, living in Christ, remaining in him. It's like this sense of dependency on who Jesus is. So how can we disconnect from Jesus? Well, the tactic of the enemy might be for us to live really distracted lives, being people just living everywhere. Hold on a second. I'm going to, I got to send out one email real quick. Um, I know, so stupid. We live distracted lives. We are busy. We're so busy that we don't remain in Christ. We don't look to him to give us that, that just that deep, significant, ongoing relationship. We trust our own strength rather than trusting in God. And on the other hand, how do we stay connected to Jesus? How do we remain in him? We remain in him by being people of the word that actually go to God, looking for God's provision, this daily bread in the word today. We, we remain in Jesus by being people of prayer and meditation. Where we open up our souls to who God is. And we listen to him. And we share with him our deepest thoughts and our fears. We remain connected to Jesus in worship when we gather and we praise God and we lift God up and remember the story of God in our life. We remain connected in Jesus in community, being in community with people who remind us who we are, who lift us up when we fall. These are ways in which we stay connected to Jesus and stay people of hope. This brings us to the second step. After we are staying connected with Jesus, we have to learn to embrace the crisis. For Elisha and his servant, they were walking into a crisis moment. 
uh, with Elisha's camp now surrounded with the enemy, we pick up the story. Elisha had a servant with him. The servant got up early in the morning with his cup of coffee, you know, stepped out of his tent, looked around, and found a huge surprise. In verse 15, with this. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. He said, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? Which is our question when we walk into a crisis. What shall we do, the servant asked. What we see here is that God uses a crisis moment to be a hope developer. That God uses a crisis moment to be an expectation builder. God uses these crises because they form in us time and time again this expectation of what God might do in our life. But none of us want a crisis moment. We'd rather study it. We don't have to live it, right? But I think that God loves when a crisis comes up in our life. I actually think that when uh, the servant woke up and walked out of the tent and looked around. I think God was actually like leaning in, going, oh, this is going to be so good. He's never going to forget this day. Look at his face. Look how frightened he is. In just a little amount of time, everything is going to change. In our lives, when we walk into a crisis, we might want to wait it out. We might want to microwave it. We might want to speed it up, but it seems like with God, God slows it down. We might want to hurry it through, but for God, God leads in on these crises because they build greater expectation in our life. And so, after staying connected to God, after embracing a crisis, we enter the third step, which is we have to learn to look through the lens of hope. And so Elisha speaks for the first time. Look at Elisha's first words in verse 16. Don't be afraid. I, I, it's, in the last four sermons, that phrase has been in each text. Don't be afraid. The prophet, ans- the prophet answered him. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you know the servant looked around at Elisha and then looked all around him, those with us, what are you talking about? But Elisha wanted to do something within his servant. He wanted to replace fear with faith. He wanted to give him a different lens to see his life through. So in verse 17, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. What a great prayer. Open his eyes, so he could see. And that's something I just, I mean, I just want to pray for us. I want to pray us that we might be people who can see. And notice what he saw in verse 17. Then the Lord opened the eyes, the servant eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What this tells us is that our perspective is limited in life. That even though the servant could see just fine, he was blind to the bigger story. He was blind to the bigger, bigger story that God was living out all around him. And fear blinds us. Hopeless living blurs our vision. Having low expectations 
that it actually allows us to accept a smaller story, yet God wants to, to blow it up, blow that small exp- expectations up to show us something bigger. Even Jesus, he would often, when he would speak with crowds, he would often say this phrase, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. He would often say this because he realized that some people would be able to see what Jesus was talking about, and it would be lost on others. Oh, that we could have eyes to see. I long to see what God wants me to see. I long to hear from God what he wants to share with me. And how often is that a prayer in our own life? God, give me eyes to see the bigger story. I imagine everything that Elisha uh, saw that the servant couldn't see. I don't think this was the first day that Elisha saw something bigger and it was lost on the servant. I wonder how many other experiences between Elisha and his servant that Elisha could see something else going on and the servant couldn't. And I wonder what Elisha's eyes could see in your life and in my life. I wonder what Elisha's eyes could see in your job loss right now. I wonder what Elisha's eyes could see in your relationship that's getting tough and you wonder if it's not going to work out. In your struggling marriage and your relationship with your child, your, with your parent. I wonder what Elisha's eyes could see with all those gifts and passions hidden inside your heart that you're too afraid to let go of, to actually release into this world. I wonder what Elisha's eyes could see in our life. In verse 18... Uh, this is when it gets juicy. As the enemy came down towards him from this hill, Elisha prayed a second prayer. Uh, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Now, now picture this in your mind. I know it's the Bible, so for whatever reason, we turn off part of our imagination, but picture this in your mind. Outside this tent is this man of God and the servant and all these chariots and horses and men of armor are charging towards Elisha and his servant. And in one moment, there are screams of war out of a simple prayer. What happened as all of them were struck blind? Did they just go silent? Did chaos erupt? All because of simple prayer. And we find here that what God wanted to build into the servant's expectation is that God is not only surrounding him, but God will fight for us. God will fight for us, blowing through our boxes of expectations, that God is always bigger and stronger. So that leads us to step four, after we have seen uh, our ability to see this life differently. Then God wants to teach us something final, which is that we are called to realize our selfless purpose. This is actually my favorite part of the story. So with this army that now has been made blind, how would you write the rest of this story? That all of a sudden, uh, the angels would come down and slaughter the enemy? That uh, Elisha would uh, say, uh, just like drop the mic and walk away, leaving everyone blind forever? Right? We would write this story, they would write this story with a lot of retribution for their attempts of killing the nation of Israel again and again. Would Elisha walk him over to the DMV and lock the doors? I don't know. In verse 19, 
uh, Elisha said to them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. Why? Okay, so we might write the story, Elisha then walked them off a cliff, right? Uh, Elisha then walked them into a One Direction concert that lasted 24-7. <laughs> no, that's not how the story goes. God's moving them to a, a bigger expectation. And verse 19 continues, And then Elisha led them to Samaria. Imagine Elisha leading this whole army of people and chariots. And he leads them to Samaria. And after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, this is the third time he's prayed this. Lord, now open their eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they looked. And there they were inside Samaria the place they were trying to battle. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them? My father, shall I kill them? Like he was living into the expected story. Oh, you brought them here, so now we slaughter them inside the city. And God wanted to blow up that expectation too. We have seen how God is beyond our expectations. God is bigger. But God wants to do something inside God's people that's unexpected. And he said to them, verse 22, Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. Wait, what? You're going to ask us to give them food and drink just to release them to come and attack us all over again? You want us to make a feast for our enemies? The story as the world would write it would have been over with a couple scenes ago. Yet the story that God writes in this world and in our life as well will always be surprising. Because God moves us to live unexpected lives. This story is not done when God shows himself as unexpected. But then God calls us to follow him and live unexpected lives. And notice the outcome. After feeding them, creating this grand feast for the enemy. Verse 23. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And notice this. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This surprising story takes a surprising twist. The unexpected God is writing unexpected stories using us. Because the eyes of Elisha didn't only see God's provision around him, he also saw a way to be an unexpected blessing to the enemy. What might have happened if Elisha just fed them outside of his own camp? If Elisha would have just released them back to the master? They would have left Elisha alone, but they would have kept on warring against Israel. Right? They would have kept on battling against Israel. But what we see here is Elijah turned to them and said, I want you to make a feast. I'm bringing them here so that true healing, that true reconciliation, true peace can happen. So we might think that God wants to raise our expectation of our life to have a better life. To raise our expectations so we can name and claim everything that we want in this world. But this is where the gospel gets it different than a lot of the self-help dialogue that we find. The end product 
of all of this is not just merely our happiness. The end product is not just our own comfort. The end product is not just so that we are preserved with everything we want. The higher expectation that God has is that you could be an unexpected blessing to many. Just like the end of this story was made of peace. It was peace not through violence, but it was peace through a banquet. And so for us, this work of God in our life is not that we raise our expectations just to see God is bigger, but we actually need to wonder what God might want to do through me, through you. Some of us might believe that God is strong and powerful, but we have really small expectations for our own life. We don't have much hope when it comes to how God could use us in this world. And so that small expectations lead to small living, and then we hide out with ambiguity, shirking any possibility to play a larger role. But this story has told us something different. I wonder about that servant's life after that day. I wonder how that servant lived differently. I wonder how he prayed after that day, after seeing Elisha praying and open people's eyes. I wonder how he saw his enemy after that day. My guess is after this day, his expectations for God went way higher, and his wonder how God might use him went higher too. Shouldn't we be the same? We have not seen Elisha move forward to us, but we have something even greater. We have Christ. We have Jesus, the unexpected Jesus. He ignored every small box of expectation that people put on him. He blew those expectations up, and he was something bigger, something more powerful, something more transformative. He, too, gave sight to the blind over and over again, not only physically but spiritually, be able to see God himself. We saw Jesus, the good shepherd, who looked at people and said, you're on the wrong journey. I want you to follow me. I want, you, I want, you to, I want to lead you to somewhere even better. In Jesus, we find even a better shepherd leading people to an unexpected life. We have in Jesus who laid himself down that he could express love to his enemies, people who were far from him. And the way in which he did that was he prepared a feast. Just like Elisha called those in Israel to prepare a feast, Jesus gathered around the table and said, no longer are you far from me. No longer are you without hope. I'm giving my own self to you. Friends, oh, that our eyes could see. Oh, that our eyes could see the hope that we have in God and the expectations that God wants us to bring to him. And perhaps in doing that, perhaps having eyes to see who God is, we might see ourselves as well.